May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You ever heard the old folk story about stone soup? Right? It exists in, in several different cultures and places, and each time the kind of the characters might be a little bit different, but the idea is still sort of the same. And so from Portugal, it comes to us in this way, right? There's a, a wandering monk who has carrying with him this empty pot and a soup ladle and his little knapsack. And he comes to a village and he goes around the village and he asks the folks that live there if they have something to eat, a crust of bread or scraps from their table. And each time the people either ignore him or they you know, send him away, tell him to quit bothering them. And so in response to this, the monk goes to the town square and stands there and announces to the townspeople that there that that evening he is going to host a feast and serve the most amazing meal. And that this meal is going to be a recipe called stone soup. So the townspeople get a little curious and so they show up as the sun starts to set to see what this is all about. And they find the monk has started a fire and he's put his pot on it and he's filled the pot with water and they show up there just in time to see him reach into his little knapsack and take out a stone and drop it into the pot. Then he sits back and lets it simmer for a little bit and then stirs it with the ladle and, and scoops up a ladleful and takes a sip and goes, mmm, that's good, but it's just missing something. All the people are like, well, I mean, it's stone and water. Like, surely it's missing a lot of things, but why don't you tell us what it's missing? And the monk says, well, it just needs a, a pinch of salt and pepper, and I don't seem to have any in my bag. And so somebody that's a little curious and wants to see where this goes runs and gets some salt and pepper and brings it back, and the monk throws it into the boiling pot of water with the stone and gives it a taste again and tilts his head, and he says, you know what would make this even more delicious? some sliced onions. And so another townsperson, being curious about what's happening, leaves and comes back with sliced onions, and, and they excitedly get thrown into the pot with a splash, and the routine goes over and over and over again, the monk sipping the soup and saying the one more thing that's needed before it's ready, and people running to get carrots or garlic or potatoes or beef, until the pot is finally filled to the brim. And everybody's hungry because it's starting to smell so good. And they set up a big table in the middle of town and bring out spoons and bowls and lay it out. And one by one, everybody gets their bowl filled by the monk. And they sit down and enjoy this wonderful soup 
that had been made while well, they laugh at how they kind of ended up here, starting with an empty pot and a stone, and suddenly they have a meal. The story came to mind reading our story from Genesis today. I told you last week we're going to talk a little bit about covenants through Lent because our readings point to us to consider what it means to be people in covenant with God. And here from Genesis, we get God making a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And God's promise this time, last week we saw it after the flood, God's promise was I will never destroy creation like this again. And now he's come to Abram and Sarai, soon to be Abraham and Sarah, and says, I'm going to make my covenant with you, Abraham. My promise to you is that you will be parents. And not just parents and not just grandparents, but you are going to be the ancestors of a multitude of nations. You will give rise to kings and your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. But we know the rest of the story, which is Abram and Sarai are kind of standing there perhaps looking at God like he's the monk with the empty kettle because they know that Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is not much younger than he is. And they've been struggling to have children all along, and Sarah has been barren. And so all of this talk of children that God is promising seems like stone in a water in a kettle calling it soup. But Paul tells us in Romans that God's covenant, that this promise that God makes to Abraham and Sarah comes not because Abraham and Sarah are so righteous under the law. And we know that they're not. The full story is they have lied and they have cheated and they've mistreated their family and, and they've sent you know, Hagar away. They haven't been great folks. But Paul says they did have faith. And so in this moment when God starts talking about covenant and it looks like it's just an empty pot with a stone in it, they still have faith. And Paul puts it this way. He says that Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distress made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised to do. That is such a radical act of faith to believe that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. And so Abraham had to let go of his understandings of the reality of the situation, that he was old, that Sarah was old, that she had been barren this whole time. We don't get in this story that Abraham maybe scoffed or said, yeah, right, we don't have a confrontation, but we know when Sarah hears about it, Sarah gives a little chuckle because she knows exactly what's going on, that they're two old people and they've never been able to have children. But they still had faith that God would do what God promised. 
regardless of how good they were, regardless of the choices that they made, that if God said, I'm going to make you the ancestor of nations, then that was going to happen. Now, in our gospel reading, we do get sort of a dramatic confrontation, maybe like the highest drama that we get between Jesus and Peter, and Peter does some boneheaded things. Um, We get this confrontation between Peter and Jesus that seems to come out of nowhere. In the scene right before this, Jesus has said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back. And Peter, in a moment of clarity and faith, looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you got it, Peter, and now let me tell you what that means. And when Jesus hears what, when Peter hears Jesus' response that to be the Messiah means suffering and rejection and death and resurrection, Peter says, nope, that's not what my understanding is. You need to come over here for a second and let me tell you what everybody is expecting of the Messiah. And it's not this. And Jesus fires back and says, get behind me, Satan. We sometimes forget that those words weren't spat out at a Pharisee or at a Roman, but they were spat out at the chief apostle who would found the church because he could not get his human way of thinking about the Messiah out of the way to listen to what God was promising and to have faith that God would do exactly what God said he was going to do. Essentially, Jesus in that moment tells Peter, you got to have faith like your ancestors. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And those that lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. To be a follower of Jesus then and now means to again be fully convinced in the radical, ridiculous idea that God is able to do what God promises. To stop telling God how to do God's work, to empty ourselves and get ourselves out of the way so that we can be filled with grace and love and healing and resurrection that all comes from God. When we clean things out, when we get rid of the clutter in our lives, when we put aside our preconceived notions of how God is supposed to work, we may feel pretty empty. We may feel a little bit useless, like we had all these ideas and now they're gone. We may feel like we don't have control, but take heart because that's that's where God wants us to be because that is when God shows up and fills us up. He found Abraham and Sarah in their old age and barrenness and brought life to an empty womb to make a nation of people. 
And he comes to us when we get out of the way and all of those hurt and heartbreak and sorrow can be healed up and mended again so that we can once again step out and tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ, which is simply God's going to do what God said he was going to do. He's going to heal us. He's going to forgive us. And he's going to lift us up on the last day. All we got to do is get out of the way. And we get this gift, this community of the church, of people daily going through struggles of getting out of the way of God. And we come together and we may feel like, you may be sitting there thinking, I don't have anything to offer. I can't make gumbo like Lawrence, right? I can't do this. I can't sing. I can't preach. I can't teach. But you come here and you empty yourself out and God's going to reach over and take a little bit of faith from you. It's going to take a little love from you over there and a little teaching from there, a little preaching from here, a little music from there. And then all of a sudden, what we thought was an empty pot, a dying church is now a feast filled with different flavors and different aromas and textures and a feast that is filled with the grace of God, spiced up with our love and experience. And all we got to do is show up to see what the wonder of God with an empty pot and some water and a stone inviting each of us to bring one more thing to it is going to turn out. And at the end of the day, we just come back again to the faith of our ancestors. And just remember, God is going to do what God promised. Amen. Amen. Amen.